Welcome to the Adrian Bow Podcast, episode 153, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Armit Nayak. Armit, how are you? Very good, Adrian. Thank you for your lovely introduction, the opportunity there as well. No problem. So Armit is a very experienced agent. He currently is working with McGrath Estate Agents in Parramatta. He's a partner of the business uh, who currently have five offices which they're running. And Armit is focusing more on that sort of North Parramatta and surrounds. And the interesting story with Armit is he's been in the industry for less than 10 years and doing over 200 transactions. Now, what we want to try and take a deep dive on Armit is, is how we got to that point. And really the whole purpose of the podcast is to add value to our listeners. And there's, there's a lot of curiosity around what the journey looks like, okay? So... Less than 10 years in the industry, so how, how many years altogether now? Seven years, Adrian. Seven. Okay, terrific. Now, I know you migrated as well to, to Australia. Yes. And we're having a brief chat on the way here in terms of the family dynamic. And when, when you first got to Australia, w- was it even in the thought process to get in real estate at all? Not at all. So um, just happened to be in the industry um, just by accident, I would say, um, but certainly was not the plan whatsoever. So... Um, so yeah, I was, I'll just sort of go through in a bit more in detail as well. Like, so I came to the country in 2007, did work as a chef, uh, started as a kitchen handle, uh, worked my way up uh, as a chef. Um, and then back in 2012, um, I was working uh, as a concierge or a security guard as a, you know, just in a residential apartment. That's where I used to meet with a lot of real estate agents when they were doing open homes uh, on Saturdays, and that's when I thought, okay, I want to do that. I want to dress nice, want to <laughs> drive nice car, mm. um, and become a real estate agent. So that's when it started. There yeah. you go. And was it was it purely just being exposed to some of those agents through being a concierge service, and at the same time you're working as a chef, right? Yes. So it was. It was it wasn't really by design. It was more like, I'd love to just look better, dress better, and you didn't really have a roadmap in terms of what it would look like, yeah? That's exactly right. I didn't really have the roadmap. Um, I, I was sort of working at that time, uh, yeah. just doing the night shifts, uh, doing a couple of jobs, still part-time as a chef, mm. and I uh, was actually looking for a career uh, as well, and, and luckily I got into this beautiful industry, and, and I don't think I would ever look back. Interesting. And, and obviously when you migrated from, from India, what was the thought process back there? Like obviously going through school and, and any studies, was there, was there some sort of you know, vision or ambition to do any type of industry at all? Not at all. Right. I was studying a bachelor in commerce back home. Yep. Um, I didn't finish my uni. I was dropped out and I came when I was 18. Right. So I thought when I come to Australia, I would study the same, Mm. um, but couldn't afford to study that. So, Mm. um, you know, hospitality was the cheapest industry uh, industry in terms of the fees and easiest to get the permanent residency. Um, That was the only reason I ended up doing that. But at some point I thought, okay, what do I do uh, and make my career in, which was uh, the first thing came to my mind was accounting. Yes. um, Or bachelor in commerce. Right. Um, And then, but luckily I started in real estate because... (laughs) I know in terms of the accounting business, I don't think it would have got the opportunities what our industry offers. Yeah, 
So there seems to be a, a, a huge migration from India to, to Australia. Yeah. But then for every person that migrates, there must be a lot of people who also stay and make a home and make a life for themselves back in India. So what's the, what's the lifestyle there like for people that don't know? I mean, look, it's, um, it, it's, you know, yes, you do like still long hours of work. There is a lot of competition because of the population there. And if you were to be either an accountant um, or an engineer, because if, you know, one job application opens, there would yep. be hundreds of them would be applying for it. Right. So it's very competitive, uh, yeah. unlike here. Mm. But um, I think in terms of the quality of life plus the opportunities, what this country would offer, obviously mm. it's, it's unlike, like there's nothing like this back home. Yes. And, and the culture in India is, is a very, very, very much one from the parents' point of view of academia, right? Yes. So it's something that is highly encouraged. It would almost be unusual, if you're assuming you're middle class or above, not, not to do some sort of post-school education, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. What, what do you think that the reason is for that? Is it ambition? Is it part of just the, uh, their, their culture? Is it a habit? What, what, do you, what do you think that comes down to? I think it's, uh, it's culture and habit, right. uh, a bit of both, I would yeah. say. Um, but, um, but I think, look, for, for my parents, if I were to look at it, you know, we were more sort of a, you know, lower middle class family yeah. um, where... Dad was running a business and just hardly sort of making a living. And um, as, as I said earlier, so my brother sort of came a couple of years before me. Mm. So dad took a massive debt. And then when I was coming, I was like, how dad would be able to afford to, to pay all my school fees and, and stuff. So again, he took another uh, debt uh, through a family member. Mm. So I think, yes, there is a lot of struggle. and But it just simply comes down to you know, a lot of people do want to move out and the purely biggest reason would be the competition or the quality of life for the long term. Yeah, because you're talking about people there with like double, triple degrees. Yes. You're going for a job. It's just the, the population alone yes. just makes the, the, the pool of, of available employees just so much higher, right? Yes. And you, so yourself and your brother have left your sister and your mum and dad back home, yes. what, that, that must be tough. It is tough, um, but since 2011, mm. uh, my parents are sort of visiting us um, pretty much uh, every year, I would say they're here. My sister's been visiting every, you know, for the past six, seven years as well. Every year she would try to, try to see us. Um, it is tough, but hey, look, we actually now used to it, they're used to it, but at least um, as coming back to this industry that and, and so thankful that we can still afford to, you know, fly back uh, every year or they'll be able to still fly back and we can even sponsor them if, if need be as well. So, um, so now it's easier, but obviously back in 2007 till first seven, eight years was very difficult. I can imagine. You've been fortunate enough to, to build a, a great life for yourself and your family, which we'll talk about. But as that young Indian boy growing up, you know, does it seem really foreign for, for what you're doing now in terms of... Because I've seen you, I've, I've called a couple of auctions for you and I'll yes. coach you and your team. You're a bit of a rock star in your area. You've got this group of followers and, um, you know, almost like a Bollywood style, you know. So it, it, does it seem really foreign based on, 
you know, what you've been grateful for and what you've been gifted with today, even though it's taken hard work, compared to that little boy growing up in, in what you're saying now is a low yes. to middle class family? Yes. I mean, look, it's, it's, I, I've done things, I, I don't take things as granted being in the industry. Mm. Um, and at the end, the only way what I'm doing today, it's mm. purely because of that community out there. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it just makes us feel great when you walk out on the street, you go out in a restaurant or local shops or supermarkets, mm. um, or even at an auction where the locals calling you by name and they, the kids knowing you as well. And obviously it makes you feel proud, but I never think that, hey, look, I'm just sitting sort of above anybody, anybody out there mm. in the community. Mm. And I think that's one thing being humble that the community always love about as well. And I believe that's how they know you. You're easy to reach to rather than someone thinking, hey, look, this guy is just never say hello or mm. don't even look at us or or, um, you know, don't pay any attention. Yep. I, I would never, ever want to be that. Yep. Um, but it's a it's, it's, it's very humbling thing where you go out at auctions or open homes and people know you and they want to talk to you. Mm. Uh, and having that bit of an attraction business, uh, that's something that we call in the industry. Mm. But I think, yeah, it's, it, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like being a Bollywood star or anything, but <laughs> I think it's just been a humbling experience, I would say. Amazing, amazing. And f- as a takeaway for, for agents listening... You know, obviously, you've immersed yourself in your community and your geography because you live in your core market. Yes. You know, your community lives in your core market as well. So would that be a tip to agents if they're choosing a market to get into, either earlier in their career or if they're, if they're actually pivoting potentially and, and having decided on a different market? Do you think having roots either geographically or culturally is, is important? It certainly is very important. Um, and, and then main reason for, for people to buy within my core markets community is the biggest reason as well, mm-hmm. as they might have rented in the area, um, you know, being temple, sort of, you know, having in, in that local market mm. and, uh, and then being, you know, wanting to stay closer to the friends or family members. Mm. Um, so, yes, it, it certainly... Uh, is that that community what we mainly see within that Westmead, Wentworth, Bill, yep. Parramatta region, and also in terms of what the suburb has to offer um, as well? I think they all want to stay within that that little community out there. And the importance of academia must have crossed over from India to Australia because it's not a coincidence. Around there, you got some of the best schools in the country. Yes. So is that still a high priority for? For your community? That's for sure. So when I look at two suburbs, for an example, within my core markets like Westmead, where uh, Westmead has a, a pretty good public school there, which has ratings of 97, 98%. Then I look at Girovin, which is within the same postcode of 2145, uh, has a very good ratings there as well. So yes, um, in terms of the school, uh, in terms of what those schools offers, either it's a high school, Parramatta High School, then Girovin, uh, you know, high school there as well, which is half selective. So um, that certainly is a big reason. And um, I would say 98% of the um, children, the, the students there are from Indian Sri Lankan background mainly. Interesting. Yeah. So then we go high level, Armit, and we think, how the hell does an agent go to, to 200 plus sales under 10 years, like seven, eight years, you know, the, how did the journey first start? We know how you got into it, yes. but 
you know, you had everything against you, like language barrier, the skill set, um, almost cliche in the sense that when you first move here, you're working at a, at a, at a gas station, you know, so yes. almost cliche sort of in your community. You know, the first year in real estate must have been pretty challenging, right? It was, um, particularly the first six months, I would say, um, because no one knows you in the area. The area was completely like new for me, um, had no sales experience as well. So yes, it was challenging, but the, the, the things that I think this, this particular time, what we can do just by jumping on you know, YouTube, uh, watching a lot of videos, uh, you have plenty of contents on you know, just Googling your, your name or going on YouTube. Um, we look at quite many others, you know, real estate coaches and, and all as well, just like yourself. There's so much content out there that we could just watch and learn which is exactly what I did uh, from, from right from the beginning. So first six months time frame, Adrian, was very difficult, but I was quite lucky my family was backing me up. So mm-hmm. my brother, I sat down with him and told him that, hey, look, I may not be making any money or bringing any money to the family. So mm-hmm. in terms of paying all the expenses for the first few months, if you could cover. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I did tell myself, my, I t- did tell my family that, hey, look, there is no plan B. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting all in without just having to look back. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, it was challenging, but I think it does get easier if we just simply stick to the process. Mm-hmm. And, um, and our business is certainly that community-based, people-based business where you just go out and start meeting with people, either it's at the open home, door knocking, cold calling, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, and just keep doing that. Uh, sitting down with agents like yourself in the industry and the main thing what I have noticed is great agents in our industry are very generous in terms of giving their time. Yeah. So um, I did exactly do that and uh, and learned a lot and just stick to those processes right from the beginning. It's so true because you, you look at, say, ARIC conference, which you, you've been fortunate enough to to uh, be asked to speak at this year, which yeah. is exciting for you. Um, and you, you look at other industries and you think to yourself, there's no real conferences or forum for, say, medicine, law or accounting where people share their IP, yes. where real estate, it's, it's free and everyone yes. seems to do it. And, and yet there's still only 80% of the industry who are still earning wages at best and 20% of the industry are earning 80% of the income. So it's, very, it's a very fractured industry in that sense. And obviously you yes. started in that 80% club and now you've, you've worked your way up to be in that sort of top 20%. In terms of volume, in fact, in the country, you'd be in probably in the top 5%. Um, so up to the first couple of years, obviously you would have had to do a number of sales and learn a yes. number of skills. Um, at what point did you put on your first team member? So that was in my very fourth year yep. um, where Ritesh was my, my elder brother. So he started in our team. Um, that year I sold 95 homes um, without having anyone in my team. Um, not, not having proud saying that because that was a big mistake. I should have certainly done that in my second year when we mm. sold uh, just over 40 homes. I should have just put somebody on at that time. Mm. But yeah, that's my, my, my fourth year when I, when I put the first person in. So 95 was with or without Ritesh? Without Ritesh. Without Ritesh, yeah. So I assume, and I know we've spoken about this, I assume the reason 
that you're suggesting that that was a mistake was three key areas could have been cannibalised. One is the customer service experience. Yes. Uh, two is uh, the leakage in your business, yes. right? And three is personal burnout. 100%. Yeah, because all of us are only equipped with 168 hours in a week, every single human, and you've got to sleep, you've got to eat, you've got to spend time with family or whatever. So, you know, I, I think you're very fortunate enough to still be here to do 95 sales and, you know, on, yes. on your own. Um, because I know what's involved in each one of those transactions. So I think a key takeaway for anyone listening is is hire, um, you know, well above or well in front of the curve. Yes. Um, because, look, my theory is I think 35 to 40 is the right number of transactions to do on your own. Completely agree. And at that point, you develop an appetite for scaling. Yes. And all scaling is is delegating anything that's non-dollar productive so you can focus on more listing, more prospecting, more negotiating, more keeping deals together. Yes. Um, and and it's, it's, it's sobering that you've had to learn it the hard way. But since then, obviously, you've scaled even further. So not only Ritesh is part of your team, but you've got two other team members. Yes. And I assume that happened a lot quicker than... than Putting that's on exactly your first right. team member, yes, right? That's exactly um, right. So, how did we go from ninety-five to over two hundred sales? What was what yes. were the key takeaways? Obviously, you know, in that we've got we've got um, Danny, who's an associate agent slash buyer's agent. You've got Ritesh, who's still a listing and selling agent within your own team, yes. and then you've got Taser, who's who's a, an office manager or EA, if you like. But apart from resources, which which they they are great resources. What, what were the other things you needed to, to do and who did you need to become to actually bridge that gap? Yes, I think first of all, I, I would say I had to really believe in myself that, yes, I can lead a team of multiple people. Mm-hmm. Second is, yes, I can sell 150, which was my, my goal after 95. We can sell more homes. And I really had to become that person you know and and have that belief in me and the team that yes we would be able to do it there were many things and and that's a mistake within our industry including myself I had at that time where we think that hey look this job the other person won't be able to do it it's just me who's going to be able to do it nobody else can do that and I think just letting things go and trusting others to be able to do that and making them CEO uh, of that that you know uh, particular department, mm-hmm. so uh, that's first thing I had to do, uh, and then I other thing that I did was um, you know who's my business partner Connor sat down with him, and he believed in me a lot. And one suggestion which came from him was you know write down things where you you really think that you are great at and you would love to do, mm-hmm. and you could by doing that you could do more volume. Mm-hmm. and write down things on the other side that you don't wanting to do uh, and you could actually delegate to somebody else to do that. So that's exactly what I did. And then a lot of things were mainly the, um, the, uh, the checking emails, replying a lot of emails, sending the proposals, uh, sending the pre-listing kits and, and all those you mm-hmm. know, things where then I had to really look back and say, okay, you know, I first person I really now need to put on was the um, was someone who could do all the admin work mm-hmm. and that's when we did put taser on mm-hmm. um, and she's incredibly good and and in terms of what she does um, and then you know Danny was the person that we put straight after um, and then because if I look back when I started in the industry Adrian 
what things that I focused on to be able to accelerate my business or get some traction in my business, mm -hmm. which was incredible bar work. Mm -hmm. and, and hence why I have got a bias agent in my team at the moment because I know that how critical that bar work is mm -hmm. because today's buyer, you know, will be our sellers. And, and one metaphor which I strongly believe is, yes, we got to be their agent before they would even need an agent. Mm -hmm. So I literally signed up a listing yesterday, which I was telling you while we mm -hmm. were coming here. Mm -hmm. Now, this particular family, I met with them back in 2015, very first month when I started in real estate. They were just, you know, they attended an auction. I took their details then and kept in touch uh, with them. They ended up buying in a different core market, mm -hmm. but then we helped them to lease their property in the previous office that I was working on. Mm -hmm. But now they were ready to sell and the only agent come to their mind was us. And, um, and yes, it's just like putting the, the money into your account seven, mm -hmm. eight years down the track, but I was already their agent that seven years ago. Mm -hmm. So um, I think following that, and, and doing that, uh, I think, and this is what exactly what I've been telling our team, where I could see Danny and Ritesh going to be an absolute incredible listing agents. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly are amazing buyers agent for now within our team. And um, now we're changing a bit of a structure with your help mm -hmm. uh, as well, where we could perhaps even sell 225, 250 homes next year, which is mm -hmm. our goal. Yeah. So what we're hearing there is is you know frequency builds trust yes. you know so you meet a buyer uh, you know seven years ago who becomes a seller today but that doesn't happen just by first impressions it doesn't happen even by providing good service you've got to do all of that and then harness the relationship and 100%. nurture a relationship yes. yeah so you think about doing that on scale with hundreds if not thousands of people that's how you go from 200 to, to 300 sales um, and that list that you wrote down you know, which was what are the things that I'd like to be focusing on? What are the things that I... Well, you mentioned some things that, you know, are worth delegating, such as pre-listing pre yes. kits, etc. What What were the main key things that you thought to yourself, I feel on purpose if I am conducting these following activities? What were those things you wrote down? Um, the main thing was, like, you know, sending thank you emails. Yeah. Um, you know, sending thank you text mail, which I still do, it, but thank you emails, then mm. sending the proposals, mm. which is one thing... I, I didn't sort of like doing it or I, I still don't prefer to do it because yeah. how many times you would go and pitch for a business and then they would say, send me a proposal and then yeah. they would just compare and they would just then say, oh, yeah, you're expensive mm. and I'm going with another agent. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, we sort of stopped doing that. Emails, there was one thing it was taking a lot of time, particularly when I started doing more volumes mm. um, where I had to just reply to each and every one of them. So we changed the system. We um, changed the processes in terms of sending those thank you emails. To give an example, these days, if I were to have an appointment at, you know, 2 o'clock this afternoon, um, Taser from our team, she would already have the thank you email uh, sent with our pre-listing kit. She would have the post-appointment email already drafted in my, in my inbox <laughs> where I have to just get out of the meeting. I send them a thank you text message mm -hmm. and then straight after that, send that email. So before I was just going back in the office, stopping that email, so that, that's been gone, right? The other thing was a lot of building uh, pest inspection, mm -hmm. the uh, bank valuation access and all that. So that one I don't need to worry anymore as well. Um, so all that process is mainly streamlined. Mm -hmm. and, um, and now the, the other thing was a lot of bar work as well because uh, doing that volume um, from that sort of a first year selling 26 to then 
50-odd homes to 95 homes. Uh, we're getting a lot of phone calls. And in my market, we, we're, you know, we've been dealing with a lot of first-home buyers who really want you to hold their hands and take them through the entire journey mm. of how that buying process looks like. Many of them do not even have the finance ready. So uh, dealing, having a broker within a team who actually attend our open home and then which Ritesh or Danny these days would do that. So I was spending a lot more time there mm-hmm. where I literally had to take that away from myself. And what focus now is this list, sell, negotiate, and then database nurturing with my, my VIP clients or the existing client. So w- when, you, when you unpack everything, this is the formula for success for, for any agent, Ahmed, whether they have a team or they don't. Um, if they have any degree of support, the key is exactly what you said. you just got to focus on prospecting, listing, negotiating, selling and database management, which, you, which yes. is what you do. But even if you don't have a team, what you could do is carve out times in your day, maybe an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, where you could do non-dollar productive activities yes. and therefore stay highly focused on dollar productivity in chunks, so therefore you maintain some degree of momentum, right? Yes. Um, Because we're not always going to have the luxury of a team member, even though once we reach a certain degree of sales, whether it's 30 or 40, we we, we should be starting to think about it, you know, well ahead of the curve. Yes. Um, So interesting, interesting point there in terms of what you had to let go of to grow. So they often yeah. say you've you got to let go to grow. Yes. Um, but what you were saying is sometimes there can be some hesitation or reluctancy because there's a degree of, of control where it's hard, right? Because they're going to make mistakes, yep. but you're going to make mistakes as well. And they need to own that. And in, to quote you, you're saying they've got to be the CEO of their swim lane. And the only way they're going to do that is to, is to learn, make mistakes, trial and error. So what sort of autonomy do you give your team members? Um, do they have full autonomy for that particular role? I think um, obviously they have their, their list you know, already with them in terms of what you know, uh, work they are doing. Uh, and also just that having a whip meeting, just work in progress meetings every day, that also helps as well that, okay, how the entire week's going to look like. So on Monday, um, as that was one thing that we changed after, you know, training, you know, after the trainings with you, mm. that, okay, we sit down on Mondays and we look at, okay, how the entire week look like mm. and how our day look like. So just catching up 10, 15 minutes. But each and every team member, certainly they do have their roles and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we all, you know, stick to each other sort of swim lane rather than me doing, you know, a few other work sort of, you know, with the buyer. Uh, or even doing some admin work or anybody else jumping in and asking those questions because it did happen at the beginning. Mm. But, um, but yes, we had to then just have their roles and responsibilities and now it just the process is extremely streamlined. So we talk about database nurturing, which, which you're now doing every day, and that's something in our coaching together we've looked at in terms of making sure that we're calling past clients, past appraisals, pipeline sellers... And, and you allocate time to that per day. What, what does that look like in terms of how, how many hours or how long per day? And, and what's the general dialogue and workflow process in terms of um, you know, what CRM you're using, how we're keeping in touch with them, and then creating the next follow-up? Yes, so that certainly is game-changing because um, many of them I just look at the data and realise that, oh, yes, I haven't spoken to this person. It's been over 6, 12, 18 months or some even longer. Um, so in terms of time, we allocate between 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. So uh, we started with one 
call session after straight after the training with you. Um, now we've changed to have even one more call session if we can. Mm -hmm. Not doing it every day, but at least when we having a lot a lot of appointments, we then try and skip that. But still to have that 11, 11.45 every morning. Um, and the goal is to have good quality conversation with our past clients, um, you know, just for that 45 minutes. So at least anywhere between, you know, 10 to 15 clients a day, um, you know, calls and then around six to eight connects a day. Um, and then in terms of CRM system, so we use AgentBox. And now the easiest part, which again, with your help, what we started doing is if I were to speak to Mr. Smith today, what we do is we have the next task already in there after 90 days. So after 90 days, they're going to be hearing from us once again. So there is another touch point as well. So that actually happens four times a year now. Mm -hmm. Before I was just sending a quarterly <laughs> market review, but they're never speaking with them. Mm. So now we have you know, simply sort of started doing that. And, um, and that's where I think, look, it's, it's in terms of a dialogue there, it's, it's quite simple and straightforward that Adrian, I just sent you that market review document, which is a quarterly that we've been sending you. Have you received it? Yes, Amit, I have received it. Now, is there anything that we could help you with your real estate journey? Are you looking at buying, selling, upsizing? No, do you know anyone within the community who might need those services? And if the answer is no, then we're like, okay, I look forward to speaking with you in the next six months, you know, or three yeah. months. Um, that's simply the dialogue. Um, but, um, but obviously in my market, a lot of, sellers are first-time sellers uh, and at some point they certainly will be looking at upsizing so the other thing is even now with the rates uh, what's been happening out there there are many buyers even still wanting to upsize uh, or the kids growing or just you know going into high school or no school no kids and then having the first child mm -hmm. and all that so I think there certainly is a lot of movements in the area particularly looking at the vo volume there so what we're hearing there Ahmed is mastery level in terms of database management and prospecting and this is such a lifeblood and, and foundation for our industry yet it seems to be one of the most confusing topics and what we're hearing there is you need to have a CRM or some sort of repository of data. Um, number two is you need to have frequency of contact whether it's 60, 90 days uh, or, or whatever frequency based on the conversation and their propensity to sell. Number three is you need to be adding value in the conversations. You need to be letting them know about just listed. You need to be letting them know about just sold. You need to actually build a relationship rather than just hiding behind a market report or an SMS or an email. Um, and you need to make it, you know, what I call and what, you know, I've had a lot of time coaching you guys about is this task-orientated approach because the alternative is a very arbitrary, opaque approach where you look at a list and think, who do I call today based on yes. my gut feeling? That does, that's not going to cut it if you want to do 200-plus deals a year. It's not going to cut it even if you want to do 60 deals a year. Um, yes. This task-orientated approach where you literally press a button on your CRM or you're handed a list every single day and you call through that list and then make brief notes and then schedule the next task. I mean, that's, that's as simple as it needs to be. That's in terms of proactive prospecting. Then you've got campaign prospecting, which is obviously callbacks, email inquiry, phone inquiry. Um, and then you've got even colder prospecting, which could be expired listings, door knocking, cold calling. Yeah. So there are the three sort of buckets, if you like. But, but that one pillar of database management, that, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. So delighted to see your team embrace that. Then you look at the next pillar, which is the listing process, right? Yes. 
what, what would you say your listing style is, Ahmed? Is it an agenda-based listing style? Is it a relationship-based, question-based? How would you summarise it? It's, uh, it's mainly agenda-based and question-based. So the day that I would you know, get a call in uh, or as soon as I receive the call, yeah, that roughly goes around 10 to 15 minutes where I actually ask a lot of questions and make a lot of notes. Um, and one thing I always love to get in terms of based on that vendors, that potential sellers research where they see the value. And a lot of my vendors, as you know, Adrian in my marketplace is because we sell a lot of apartments and 60% of apartment sellers are selling a lot lesser than what they purchase for. Um, and that's why I just want to make it very straightforward. If they're sitting 5, 10, 15% above the market value, 5% it's okay at the end because mm-hmm. that can be managed. But if they were to be sitting 15, 20% above the market value, then I just you know, tell them very upfront approach straight on the phone that, hey, look, that value is not there uh, and how they arrive to that value. And then just, if they have the motivation, probably, yes, I'll still go and see them. But many then I may not even just go see them. But then the listing appointment, before that I actually send them the agenda by email and ask them to look into that as well or read through that beforehand. And uh, when I sit down with them, again, a lot of questions and then go through the agenda. Perfect. What's an example of some of the items on the agenda there? So the first thing I like to talk is the price Mm -hmm. um, as well, even though I already asked them on the phone. And then I take a couple of comparable sales with me. And then we go through those comparables, talk about where their property sits in terms of value, then the demographic of buyers who's likely to buy that style of a home. Then we talk about the method as well, auction versus private treaty, um, about the marketing in terms of the what's going to be helping them to maximize the sale price, the, the time, the fees, and that's pretty much what we discuss. And if they're willing to move forward then and there, um, then we just sort of close you know, the business and do the paperwork from that point on. Fantastic. And what do you like in terms of highlighting your unique selling propositions? Is it something that you need to, to utilise at every listing appointment, whether your own personal propositions or your company's personal propositions? Is this something that you find that you're, you're talking about in, in most, if not all, appraisals? I, I would speak to a, a few of them because yep. a lot of them, they have actually seen the numbers, uh, what we do on the internet. Um, so, yes, I, I still like to you know remind them in terms of the... The, the accessibility to the bias, what we have mm-hmm. as, as a team, as an office. Uh, the second thing, uh, what I like to talk about is, is the speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them, um, you know, that actually relate to the emails or phone calls that they made to us mm-hmm. and how quickly we sending them the, the pre-listing kit, sending mm-hmm. them the text messages, you know, confirming the appointment that day and straight after the appointment, you know, sending a text message, thanking them and then sending an email and then sending a bar match email. So we talk about the speed as well. And look, I mean, a, a lot of the agents in our marketplace, I would say that they're very laid back and very old school that the inquiry comes and they would be like, yeah, okay, the bar would call me if they're mm-hmm. wanting to. So those are the main two things that I, I do discuss uh, at, at that point of time. Um, and then obviously mm-hmm. in terms of negotiations as well. So. Like yesterday, I was with a, with a client where he asked me a question that, okay, what do you do if you have only one bidder at auction? And I actually role-played with him then mm. and there. So, um, so are you even doing that as well? Uh, Perfect. Maybe. There's nothing like, you know, actually showing the client what you do rather than telling them what yes. you do. And role-play, I think, is, is a great example of that. Um, so then we go into the next pillar, which is that, that vendor management. And, you know, you, you're almost... 
working in two opposite markets in within your geography, Armit. As as you said earlier, your your strata market prices have gone backwards, but your housing market prices have have, have extremely advanced in a, in an upwards trajectory, like you wouldn't believe, only because it's such an affordable market yes. place, um, and the growth's been massive, right? So. For those people that are complaining about vendor management, have a think about that. Not many markets you would be dealing with properties that have actually gone backwards in price, yes. right? So that, that's challenging for strata, but then you've got that other market of, of, of housing. Um, so what, what are your key tips to agents watching or listening to this in terms of best practice vendor management um, based in terms of setting the expectations, frequency of communication, uh, when to have the tough conversations, when not to? What would be your top tips yeah, so I, I obviously frequency is the first one. So mm-hmm. I do speak to them, um, you know, obviously straight after the listing in terms of managing the expectation, how often they're going to be hearing from me, yep. um, how often I would perhaps even go and see them as well. Uh, every Tuesday, for an example, I have the vendor meetings via Zoom because of the volume I, I like to do via Zoom. So, and which is a must. I even tell the vendors that we've got to catch up. If you were to get a call from me on Saturday night, uh, you know that I have to come and see you. That must be very alarming. Um, that the campaign is certainly well off track. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, I, I normally go and see them. Um, but yeah, first thing would be the frequency. Second, in terms of a lot of data-driven, you know that that research in terms of first first day, second day, how many views we had, how many inquiries we had, how the property is performing on the internet, um, and then obviously looking at the feedback from either private inspections. Uh, or Saturday uh, and weekday open homes. So yeah, it's, it's much more sort of data-driven and numbers-driven based on the performance uh, of that particular property. Yeah. Um, then, you know, having to tell them that being open and available throughout that campaign, um, that if we were to give you a, a notice of 24 hours and say, hey, look, you know, I've got a buyer that who's willing to come and have a look at the property, uh, making yourself available as well, um, throughout that campaign because generally we even schedule a lot of inspections where you know many sellers even do notice in the area many buyers do even tell them uh, tell us as well or ask a question that hey look I see open homes like random day Monday mm-hmm. for 15 minutes on, on Friday for 15 minutes uh, 10 minutes so what we do is mm-hmm. every time we, we take a buyer through uh, or, or book a private inspection we put 15-20 minutes open home so having to have that frequency, but speaking with them minimum three times a week, meeting with them face-to-face via, via Zoom or in person once a week, uh, and then uh, obviously uh, getting the, uh, the offers throughout the, the campaign, particularly the very first week, which is you know very critical week uh, in, in our view. So getting the, uh, the, the sort of you know, offers on a continuous sort of basis, which actually is the only thing which actually educate them and, and get the vendors to meet the market if they are sitting well above the market. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So what, what, we're, what we're listening here to, guys, is, is we're having a set-to-sell meeting, obviously yes. between list-to-launch. list, list to launch. Um, And at that set-to-sell meeting, we're, we're creating pragmatic um, benchmarking, if you like, in terms of number it opens, how many contracts, how many offers, etc. So that way... You know, we, we, we can actually measure whether we're on or off track yes. based on those objective metrics rather than subjective comments from buyers such as the bedroom's too small or something like that. Yes. So we're hearing that. We're hearing 
non-negotiable face-to-face weekly. Yes. Um, and, and the reason that's important is because there's only so much you can achieve over the phone or even via vendor reports, which, I'm, which I assume is part of your strategy as well. Um, yes. but, but having that face-to-face, you know, displaying that evidence of effort before you provide that evidence of market yeah. and in that order is, is really, really critical. And then obviously frequency building that trust as well um, and not being, not being afraid of having the tougher conversations. And if, it's, if there's some urgency required around it, well, Saturday night, great, then we need to get in front of the client. And it's not, it's not even a tough conversation, it's an honest conversation. Yes. Every owner deserves to know exactly what's happening with their property and if it's off track if it's off track well let's be that trusted advisor whether it's a doctor lawyer accountant who's indiscriminate about the news they provide they just provide the news right um and if it's if it's good bad or indifferent well let's just discuss it but like those industries they've got a solution and so our our scenario might be look we only had three groups instead of 12 However, I can see that we've had a 1,000 web views, so that's quite a high dismissal rate. My recommendation in order to reduce that dismissal rate and get more people engaging, not just online but physically, is price presentation marketing, whatever that looks like, right? So that's brilliant. And then we go to the next pillar, which is buyer servicing. Now, obviously, your team's doing a lot more buyer servicing than you are, but you, you're still involved um, because you are talking to buyers at auction. You are talking to the key buyers on every campaign. What tips would you give to agents today in this market in terms of best practice buyer work? I think this market's more critical in terms of when the time would come for a buyer to transact, when you do hear a lot of negative media, the only way the buyer would listen to you and, and make an offer where you actually look him in the eye and say, hey, look, Adrian, you've got to pay another $20,000 more. Mm-hmm. Many times what used to happen is when the market was really good mm-hmm. and the market was putting the deal together, many agents were obviously not answering the buyer's you know, questions or um, not even um, you know, greeting them properly even at the open homes um, and then be like, hey, look, just make an offer or just neglecting the questions mm. versus now a lot of Asians trying to be- become their best friends. Mm. This is where I see that biggest challenge comes. However, our team, the main, which always has been the goal is, yes, that frequency, even with a buyer. So just even give an example where the, when the inquiry comes through, from the inquiry to the inspection and post-inspection, we have five to six touch points with that buyer. So what are the, those touch points are is as soon as the inquiry comes through, within 10 minutes, it's been replied, which is an auto-respond, right? So we set that up. So the, it's been responded. Second is a phone call. Third is a text message on Friday with the open home reminder with the times. And then when you see them face-to-face as well, they already feel that relationship is a bit warm already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously the text message on Saturday afternoon as well. Uh, as well as the follow-up phone call on Saturday afternoon or Monday afternoon or Monday morning, right? So you already have spoken to that person five times and then we do it every time they would make an inquiry. Mm. Also, then even reaching out to them if they were to need any finance help, you know, if they have any conveyances or, or, or not as well. So I think doing that, it certainly would be building that trust and where my marketplace is mainly non-auction market, especially for the apartments, where we actually auction a lot and, and asking the buyer to buy that, that property unconditional, 
we really got to have that solid relationship, mm. which is extremely important because if that buyer were to just buy uh, that property, obviously we provide all the strata reports and you know would have the, the solicitor reviewing the contract and all that for them ready to mm. go. So then that way they could just really purchase the property without any hassle. But that it comes down to again the relationship uh, with those buyers and many of them we actually, um, our goal is always once a buyer comes through our funnel, we really want to make sure that they end up buying from us or from our agency. Mm-hmm. Why? is because the number of inspections that we will be doing in the area, we actually make things easier for them and giving them the list that, hey, look, these are the similar properties that we have. And then they would just, that, that Saturday whole day, they would just follow us and inspect the properties with us. Brilliant. So what we're hearing is you've got to do an audit on your business to discover whether you're easy and quick to do business with. Yes. So from your team as a buyer, you know, it's already an intimidating process to engage with agents. Yes. Uh, it's already a difficult process to navigate through who do I speak to, what do I say, where do I go in order to secure a piece of real estate. So all you're doing is, is over-communicating, making it easy to do business with you, making it transparent and making it quick as well, which is brilliant. So the last pillar we, we look at, um, Armit, you know, when we're, when we're you know, analysing agents' businesses and, and their business plan in particular is, is the leveraging part of, of our business and also what investment's involved in that, you know, because, you know, wh- whether you're an agent or an associate or whatever, you, you, you're actually, you're not an employee or you're not a principal, you're a business. And, and like all businesses, you've you got, you got to market yourself, right? Yes. Um, now, there's a lot of free marketing in terms of just providing great service and turning up on time and, and, and greeting people. And that, that's free and it's still considered marketing uh, because a lot of our competition are not even doing that. Yes. But then there, 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 is, there is a fiscal investment required. What, what are the sort of things you're investing in <clears throat> from a personal marketing perspective that you find is effective? Um, I think it, that marketing, Adrian, would have to be online and offline. Yep. So the online is, you know, either uh, having the banners on ARIA domain, mm-hmm. um, either having the showcase on ARIA domain, um, as well as, you know, the regular sort of videos, a monthly wrap video on which is nice, professionally done and boosting within my marketplace, which I can, you know, continuously doing for the past few months. Then uh, providing everyone the information just by going live on Facebook on a weekly basis every Saturday afternoon. As soon as I finish my day with callbacks, with vendor conversations, I go live on Facebook and just summarize, okay, what exactly happened that day. Uh, so the locals, either they buy our seller, investor, they get some information about the, the market there. Uh, doing that, plus also getting uh, involved within the community, either it's with the temple, uh, with the schools as well. So there are uh, three schools within our core markets where we actually sponsor the schools. So any sale happened within that school catchment, you know, we give some money towards that school. So, you know, there was one school where they needed some sports equipments uh, for the school, uh, for the kids. So we were like, okay, we happy to sponsor that from our end. Um, so I think just doing all that where the locals do look at you that you're not just a real estate agent, you're mm. the human first, mm. right? Um, and then the real estate agent. So I think just doing that marketing, plus on top of it, having you know, the DL cards, which is just listed, auction in white, just sold, doing 1,000 uh, to 2,000 each property, plus, uh, you know, sending a lot of text messages, inviting the entire community to our auctions. So that sort of marketing we mainly focus on. 
um, which is more sort of online, which is Facebook, REA domain, and offline, which is a lot of drops, the school involvement, and everything. Brilliant, brilliant. A lot of authenticity there, a lot of leverage marketing, and promotion, yes, but but in a, in a, in a way where we're adding value to our community, yes. which is great. So as we wrap up, Amit, the, the best part about this is is we've looked at database and prospecting, we've looked at the listing process, we've looked at vendor management, we've looked at buyer work, and we've looked at leveraging or, or campaign marketing or personal marketing, which is great. So the industry doesn't get any more complicated than that. So you've got to find what works for you um, in terms of those main areas. Now, your uh, focus in those areas has, has evolved over time, right? It didn't look like this last year and it won't look like this in two years' time. So you've got to be very fluid in this industry. And um, you're a really good example of good guys coming first. You know, like a lot of people say, oh, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be a bit ruthless in this industry to do well. I, I disagree. I, I think that if you're honest, transparent and humble, which you, you, you're equipped with all those traits then it's not a surprise that you're dominating your market. So congratulations to you. As we wrap up, I like to ask everyone, uh, and I never prepare you f- anyone for this in, in my interviews, but one question I'll ask you is, um, what, what's, what's something that, that's happened in your career which, which at the time was a mistake, but in hindsight was, 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 was a lesson? I think just um, what we even discussed earlier, putting um, trusting someone that, hey, look, you 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 got to have burnout if you really don't put a, yep. r- a right person in place within your team at a right time because mm-hmm. back in that 15 when i started started getting a bit of a business in 16 mm. that's when i had my my first child my my, my daughter eva was born mm. uh, that year and was very challenging for that first two years where i thought that i could do everything and mm. then put anybody on mm. so i think um, that that is certainly if any agent out there being in the business for the last six, 12 months mm. and been selling around 15, 20, 25 properties or so, I think they've got to make that investment by believing in themselves that, hey, look, that is going to be the best investment mm-hmm. um, and, and do that rather than thinking that, hey, look, you'll be okay in terms of doing all that by yourself. Excellent, excellent. What's, what's one of the better things that have happened in, in your career during during your time in real estate? The better thing was obviously making a move, mm-hmm. um, which obviously was one of the, the challenging thing at that time when I looked at, and, um, and trusting that, hey, look, change is great, you know, but obviously there was, you know, much more uh, thoughtful and, and believing the person, believing in the team, um, you know, Convos, as I mentioned earlier, was the reason for me to make a move, mm-hmm. and obviously the beautiful brand uh, backed by John McGrath, who mm. also coached me for the first six to 12 months when I, when I joined. So I think making that move was the biggest thing. And um, then you, how many, how many times, you know, the great things happen to your life and say, mm. hey, look, that should have happened, yeah. you know, a few years before. And that was one of that moment mm. when I look at it that, hey, look, I should have done that couple of years before doing that. Mm. But mm. that was the best thing happened to, to my life. Yeah, and that, that's a good metaphor for anyone listening is that, you know, all, all, all brands are great and they all offer something. It's just that whatever works for you in, in your market, it might even be opening your own independent agency. Um, I think one thing that's becoming more relevant in the current landscape of the industry is that you are your own business 
And these brands, whether they're a large franchise group such as McGrath or Ray White or Earl J Hooker, um, they provide a platform for you to build your brand yes. um, or whether it's an independent or whatever it might be. So I think it's really interesting in terms of taking that leap of faith and it's not for everyone. You know, some people are going to be very happy listing and selling, just being an, an agent, if you like, and their wealth creation plan might be just buying investment property or it might be becoming a partner in a larger organisation um, or it might be, you know, a certain brand in that market suits you. So I think the important thing is focus on building your own brand and use whatever platform you can that suits you in terms of the resources that they offer, yeah? Yes. Last thing, um, Amit, is what's, what's one of the best pieces of advice you got you know, during, during your career in real estate so far? Yeah, for, for me it was, um, you know, just, just become people's person, yeah. um, which is, I think, um, is super important within our industry and, and be grounded no matter uh, how uh, big you become or, or how many properties you would sell or how much commission you would write or, or whatever it is. I think be grounded and be humble of what you do and, and give your best crack at, at anything and everything that you, you, know, you, you do. And um, you know, lastly, what I would say is if uh, someone like myself, you know, coming to this beautiful country you know, not long time back and then with a very limited English, having that language barrier, if I can do it, you know, I strongly believe that anybody would be able to do it. And, and you know, I think this is certainly a great industry. And uh, as long as we get all in, all 100% in, because a lot of agents just, just you know, will, will be thinking, hey, look, I just want to do part-time or do, you know, want to learn just for a time being. If it works out well for me, I would do it. Otherwise, I'll just quit. So if you do it, be 100% in and just give the absolute best crack at it. Yeah. yeah, love it. And you said before, no plan B, you know, which, is, which is great. Um, last thing, you get to ask me a question, any, anything you like. Um, for you, Adrian, I, I always think like, you know, you're kind of a person like up three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I, I wake up in the morning and look at, oh, that's Adrian there. Um, plus, you know, then you sort of coach, you're running the coaching business. You're also in the, you know, listing, selling business. Mm. How do you do all that? <laughs> uh, the secret is no children and not much sleep required. Damn, I've got two. <laughs> two kids. <laughs> two of them, right? And you need, you need more sleep than me. Yeah. Yeah. I think oh, it just seem, seems like you never sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, some, some people are just um, conditioned not, not to require so much, so much sleep, and I'm just blessed, oh, blessed or, or cursed, I don't know yeah. which one it is yet, uh, that, that, that's, that I fall into that category. But look, I mean, for me, I love variety. It's actually a biological human need. Obviously, in developing countries, you know, food, water, shelter is uh, yes. human needs. But, you know, for, for us in developed countries, our biological human needs actually include variety, you know, certainty, connection, uh, love, growth, contribution, all these things. And I, I, I like to, to feel as if I've got an eclectic um, list of activities, you know, on, on the plate for the day, yes. uh, whether it's creating content, working with a client, doing an auction, whatever, whatever it might be. So I, I think it's, it's being passionate and on purpose. So I think, you know, like your listing presentation, it's comprehensive and it's compelling. I think for me, you know, if I feel on purpose every day, if, an, if, I'm, if I'm passionate about what I do, then I've got a very low expectation in return. I like yes. to adopt that altruistic approach that 
I'm, I'm contributing, I'm adding value. Um, it could be polarising. There might be part of the community that, that, that it's not for them and that's fine, but it doesn't change where my approach, which is I like to give a lot more than I receive. And um, some people, you know, some people take advantage of that and other people yeah. are really grateful for it. But it, I don't deviate from, yes. from, from what I do. And that, not dissimilar to your, to your journey, uh, Ahmed. So, look, I really appreciate everyone tuning in. I really appreciate your time, Ahmed. Episode 153 of the Adrian Bow podcast. Uh, it's been a great uh, conversation today. And as I said, good guys come first. And the humble hero here in Ahmed is uh, doing some fantastic numbers. Over 200 uh, transactions over $3 million in GCI and on track, I think, to grow his business exponentially. So thanks, Ahmed. Thank you, Adrian. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Pleasure. everyone.